Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight. I will be reading The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One On a January evening of the early 70s, Christine Nielsen was singing in Faust at the Academy of Music in New York. Though there was already talk of the erection, in remote metropolitan distances above the forties, of a new opera house 
which should compete in costliness and splendour with those of the great European capitals. The world of fashion was still content to reassemble every winter in the shabby red and gold boxes of the sociable old academy. Conservatives cherished it for being small and inconvenient, and thus keeping out the new people whom New York was beginning to dread and yet be drawn to. And the sentimental clung to it for its historic associations, and the musical for its excellent acoustics, always so problematic a quality in halls built for the hearing of music. It was Madame Nielsen's first appearance that winter, and what the daily press had already learned to describe as an exceptionally brilliant audience, had gathered to hear her, transported through the slippery, snowy streets and private broughams in the spacious family Landau, or in the humbler or more convenient browned coupé. To come to the opera in a brown coupé was almost as honourable a way of arriving as in one's own carriage, and departure by the same means had the immense advantage of enabling one, with a playful allusion to democratic principles, to scramble into the first brown conveyance in the line, instead of waiting till the cold and gin-congested nose of one's own coachman gleamed onto the portico of the academy. It was one of the great livery stableman's most masterly intuitions to have discovered that Americans want to get away from amusement even more quickly than they want to get to it. When Neil and Archer opened the door at the back of the club box, the curtain had just gone up on the garden scene. There was no reason why the young man should not have come earlier, for he had dined at seven, alone with his mother and sister, and had lingered afterward over a cigar in the Gothic library with glazed black walnut bookcases and finial-topped chairs, which was the only room in the house where Mrs. Archer allowed smoking. But in the first place, New York was a metropolis, and perfectly aware that in metropolises it was not the thing to arrive early at the opera, and what was or was not the thing played a part as important in Newland Archer's New York as the terrors that had ruled the destinies of his forefathers thousands of years ago. The second reason for his delay was a personal one. He had dawdled over his cigar because he was at heart a dilettante, and thinking over a pleasure to come often gave him a subtler satisfaction than its realisation. This was especially the case when the pleasure was a delicate one, as his pleasures mostly were, and on this occasion the moment he looked forward to was so rare and exquisite in quality that, while if he had timed his arrival in accord with the prima donna's stage manager, he could not have entered the academy at a more significant moment than just as she was singing, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, and sprinkling the falling daisy petals with notes as clear as dew. She sang, of course, Mama, and not he loves me, since an unalterable and unquestioned law of the musical world required that the German text of French operas sung by Swedish artists should be translated into Italian for the clearer understanding of English-speaking audiences. This seemed as natural to Newland Archer as all the other conventions on which his life was moulded, such as the duty of using two silver-backed brushes with his monogram in blue enamel to part his hair, and of never appearing in society without a flower, 
preferably a gardenia, in his buttonhole. Mama, no mama, the prima donna sang, and mama, with a final burst of love triumphant, as she pressed the disheveled daisy to her lips and lifted her large eyes to the sophisticated countenance of the little Faust Capul, who was vainly trying, in a tight purple velvet doublet and plumed hat, to look as pure and true as his artless victim. Neil and Archer, leaning against the wall at the back of the club box, turned his eyes from the stage and scanned the opposite side of the house. Directly facing him was the box of old Mrs. Manson Mingott, whose monstrous obesity had long since made it impossible for her to attend the opera, but who was always represented on fashionable nights by some of the younger members of the family. On this occasion, the front of the box was filled by her daughter-in-law, Mrs. Lovell Mingott, and her daughter, Mrs. Welland, and slightly withdrawn behind those brocaded matrons sat a young girl in white with eyes ecstatically fixed on the stage lovers. As Madame Nielsen's mamma thrilled out above the silent house, the boxes always stopped talking during the daisy song. A warm pink mounted to the girl's cheek, mantled her brow to the roots of her fair braids, and suffused the young slope of her breast to the line where it met a modest tulle tucker fastened with a single gardenia. She dropped her eyes to the immense bouquet of lilies of the valley on her knee, and Newland Archer saw her white-gloved fingertips touch the flowers softly. He drew a breath of satisfied vanity, and his eyes returned to the stage. No expense had been spared on the setting, which was acknowledged to be very beautiful, even by people who shared his acquaintance with the opera houses of Paris and Vienna. The foreground to the footlights was covered with emerald green cloth. In the middle distance, symmetrical mounds of woolly green moss, bounded by croquet hoops, formed the base of shrubs shaped like orange trees, but studded with large pink and red roses. Gigantic pansies, considerably larger than the roses and closely resembling the floral pen wipers made by female parishioners for fashionable clergymen, sprang from the moss beneath rose trees, and here and there a daisy grafted on a rose branch flowered with a luxuriance prophetic of Mr. Luther Burbank's far-off prodigies. In the centre of this enchanted garden, Madame Nielsen, in white cashmere slashed with pale blue satin, a reticule dangling from a blue girdle, and large yellow braids carefully disposed on each side of her muslin chemisette, listened with downcast eyes to Monsieur Capoul's impassioned wooing and affected a guileless incomprehension of his designs whenever, by word or glance, he persuasively indicated the ground floor window of the neat brick villa projecting obliquely from the right wing. The darling, thought Newland Archer, his glance flitting back to the young girl with the lilies of the valley. She doesn't even guess what it's all about and he contemplated her absorbed young face with a thrill of possessorship in which pride in his own masculine initiation was mingled with a tender reverence for her abysmal purity. We'll read Faust together, by the Italian lakes, he thought, somewhat hazily confusing the scene of his projected honeymoon with the masterpieces of literature 
which it would be his manly privilege to reveal to his bride. It was only that afternoon that May Wellen had let him guess that she cared, New York's consecrated phrase of maiden avowal, and already his imagination, leaping ahead of the engagement ring, the betrothal kiss, and the march from Lohengrin, pictured her at his side in some scene of old European witchery. He did not in the least wish the future Mrs. Newland Archer to be a simpleton. He meant her, thanks to his enlightening companionship, to develop a social tact and readiness of wit, enabling her to hold her own with the most popular married women of the younger set, in which it was the recognised custom to attract masculine homage while playfully discouraging it. If he had probed to the bottom of his vanity, as he sometimes nearly did, he would have found there the wish that his wife should be as worldly wise and as eager to please as the married lady whose charms had held his fancy through two mildly agitated years, without, of course, any hint of the frailty which had so nearly marred that unhappy being's life and had disarranged his own plans for a whole winter. How this miracle of fire and ice was to be created and to sustain itself in a harsh world, he had never taken the time to think out, but he was content to hold his view without analysing it, since he knew it was that of all the carefully brushed, white waistcoated, buttonhole-flowered gentlemen who succeeded each other in the club box, exchanged friendly greetings with him, and turned their opera glasses critically on the circle of ladies who were the product of the system. In matters intellectual and artistic, Newland Archer felt himself distinctly the superior of these chosen specimens of old New York gentility. He had probably read more, thought more, and even seen a good deal more of the world than any other man of the number. Singularly, they betrayed their inferiority. A group together, they represented New York, and the habit of masculine solidarity made him accept their doctrine on all the issues called moral. He instinctively felt that in this respect, it would be troublesome, and also rather bad form, to strike out for himself. Well, upon my soul, exclaimed Lawrence Lefferts, turning his opera glass abruptly away from the stage. Lawrence Lefferts was on the whole the foremost authority on form in New York. He had probably devoted more time than anyone else to the study of this intricate and fascinating question. A study alone could not account for his complete and easy competence. One had only to look at him from the slant of his bald forehead and the curve of his beautiful fair moustache to the long patent leather feet at the other end of his lean and elegant person to feel that the knowledge of form must be congenital in anyone who knew how to wear such good clothes so carelessly and carry such height with so much lounging grace. As a young admirer had once said of him, if anybody can tell a fellow just when to wear a black tie with evening clothes and when not to, it's Larry Lefferts. And on the question of pumps versus patent leather, Oxford's, his authority had never been disputed. My God, he said, and silently handed his glass to old Sillerton Jackson. Newland Archer, following Lefferts' glance, saw with surprise that his exclamation had been occasioned by the entry of a new figure into old Mrs. Mingott's box. It was that of a slim young woman, 
a little less tall than May Welland, with brown hair growing in close curls about her temples and held in place by a narrow band of diamonds. The suggestion of this headdress, which gave her what was then called a Josephine look, was carried out in the cut of the dark blue velvet gown, rather theatrically caught up under her bosom, by a girdle with a large old-fashioned clasp. The wearer of this unusual dress, who seemed quite unconscious of the attention it was attracting, stood a moment in the centre of the box, discussing with Mrs. Welland the propriety of taking the latter's place in the front right-hand corner. Then she yielded with a slight smile and seated herself in line with Mrs. Welland's sister-in-law, Mrs. Lovell Mingott, who was installed in the opposite corner. Mr. Sillerton Jackson had returned the opera glass to Lawrence Lefferts. The whole of the club turned instinctively, waiting to hear what the old man had to say, for old Mr. Jackson was as great an authority on family as Lawrence Lefferts was on form. He knew all the ramifications of New York's cousinships and could not only elucidate such complicated questions as that of the connection between the Mingots through the Thorleys with the Dallases of South Carolina and that of the relationship of the elder branch of the Philadelphia Thorleys to the Albany Chivises, on no account to be confused with the Manson Chivises of University Place, but could also enumerate the leading characteristics of each family, as, for instance, the fabulous stinginess of the younger lines of the Leffertses, the Long Island ones, or the fatal tendency of the Rushworths to make foolish matches, or the insanity reoccurring in every second generation of the Albany Chivises, with whom their New York cousins had always refused to intermarry, with the disastrous exception of poor Medora Manson, who, as everybody knew, but then her mother was a Rushworth. In addition to this forest of family trees, Mr. Sillerton Jackson carried between his narrow, hollow temples and under his soft thatch of silver hair a register of most of the scandals and mysteries that had smouldered under the unruffled surface of New York society within the last fifty years. So far indeed did his information extend, and so acutely retentive was his memory, that he was supposed to be the only man who could have told you who Julius Beaufort, the banker, really was, and what had become of handsome Bob Spicer, old Mrs. Manson Mingott's father, who had disappeared so mysteriously with a large sum of trust money, less than a year after his marriage, on the very day that a beautiful Spanish dancer, who had been delighting thronged audiences in the old opera house on the Battery, had taken ship for Cuba. But these mysteries, and many others, were closely locked in Mr. Jackson's breast, for not only did his keen sense of honour forbid his repeating anything privately imparted, but he was fully aware that his reputation for discretion increased his opportunities of finding out what he wanted to know. The club box therefore waited in visible suspense while Mr. Sillerton Jackson handed back Lawrence Lefford's opera glass. For a moment, he silently scrutinized the attentive group out of his filmy blue eyes overhung by old veined lids. Then he gave his moustache a thoughtful twist and said simply, I didn't think the Minkuts would have tried it on. Chapter 2 Newland Archer, during this brief episode, had been thrown into a strange state of embarrassment. 
It was annoying that the box, which was thus attracting the undivided attention of masculine New York, should be that in which his betrothed was seated between her mother and aunt. And for a moment, he could not identify the lady in the Empire dress, nor imagine why her presence created such excitement among the initiated. Then light dawned on him, and with it came a momentary rush of indignation. No, indeed, no one would have thought the Mingots would have tried it on. But they had, they undoubtedly had, for the low-toned comments behind him left no doubt in Archer's mind that the young woman was May Wellen's cousin, the cousin always referred to in the family as poor Ellen Olenska. Archer knew that she had suddenly arrived from Europe a day or two previously. He had even heard from Miss Welland, not disapprovingly, that she had been to see poor Ellen, who was staying with old Mrs. Mingott. Archer entirely approved of family solidarity, and one of the qualities he most admired in the Mingotts was their resolute championship of the few black sheep that their blameless stock had produced. There was nothing mean or ungenerous in the young man's heart, and he was glad that his future wife should not be restrained by false prudery from being kind, in private, to her unhappy cousin. But to receive Countess Olenska in the family circle was a different thing from producing her in public, at the opera of all places, and in the very box with the young girl whose engagement to him, Newland Archer, was to be announced within a few weeks. No, he felt as old Sillerton Jackson felt. He did not think the Mingotts would have tried it on. He knew, of course, that whatever man dared within Fifth Avenue's limits, that old Mrs. Manson Mingott, the matriarch of the line, would dare. He had always admired the high and mighty old lady, who, in spite of having been only Catherine Spicer of Staten Island, with a father mysteriously discredited, and neither money nor position enough to make people forget it, had allied herself with the head of the wealthy Mingott line, married two of her daughters to foreigners, an Italian marquis and an English banker, and put the crowning touch to her audacities by building a large house of pale cream-coloured stone when brown sandstone seemed as much the only wear as a frock coat in the afternoon. In an inaccessible wilderness near the Central Park, old Mrs. Mingott's foreign daughters had become a legend. They never came back to see their mother, and the latter being, like many persons of active mind and dominating will, sedentary and corpulent in her habit, had philosophically remained at home. But the cream-coloured house, supposed to be modelled on the private hotels of the Parisian aristocracy, was there as a visible proof of her moral courage, and she throned in it, among pre-revolutionary furniture and souvenirs of the Tuileries of Louis Napoleon, where she had shone in her middle age, as placidly as if there were nothing peculiar in living above 34th Street, or in having French windows that opened like doors instead of sashes that pushed up. Everyone, including Mr. Sillerton Jackson, was agreed that old Catherine had never had beauty, a gift which, in the eyes of New York, justified every success and excused a certain number of failings. And kind people said that, like her imperial namesake, she had won her way to success by strength of will and hardness of heart, and a kind of haughty effrontery that was somehow justified by the extreme decency and dignity of her private life. 
Mr. Manson Mingott had died when she was only 28 and had tied up the money with an additional caution born of the general distrust of the Spicers. But his bold young widow went her way fearlessly, mingled freely in foreign society, married her daughters in heaven knew what corrupt and fashionable circles, hobnobbed with dukes and ambassadors, associated familiarly with papists, entertained opera singers, and was the intimate friend of Madame Taglioni. And all the while, as Sillerton Jackson was the first to proclaim, there had never been a breath on her reputation. The only respect, he always added, in which she differed from the earlier Catherine. Mrs. Manson Mingott had long since succeeded in untying her husband's fortune and had lived in affluence for half a century. But memories of her early straits had made her excessively thrifty. And though, when she bought a dress or a piece of furniture, she took care that it should be of the best, she could not bring herself to spend much on the transient pleasures of the table. Therefore, for totally different reasons, her food was as poor as Mrs. Archer's, and her wines did nothing to redeem it. Her relatives considered that the penury of her table discredited the Mingott name, but it had always been associated with good living. The people continued to come to her in spite of the made dishes and flat champagne, and in reply to the remonstrances of her son Lovell, who tried to retrieve the family credit by having the best chef in New York, she used to say laughingly, What's the use of two good cooks in one family, now that I've married the girls and can't eat sauces? Newland Archer, as he mused on these things, had once more turned his eyes toward the Mingott box. He saw that Mrs. Welland and her sister-in-law were facing their semicircle of critics with the Mingottian aplomb which old Catherine had inculcated in all her tribe, and that only May Welland betrayed by heightened colour, perhaps due to the knowledge that he was watching her, a sense of the gravity of the situation. As for the cause of the commotion, she sat gracefully in the corner of her box, her eyes fixed on the stage, and revealing, as she leaned forward, a little more shoulder and bosom than New York was accustomed to seeing, at least in ladies who had reasons for wishing to pass unnoticed. Few things seemed to Newland Archer more awful than an offence against taste, that far-off divinity of whom form was the mere visible representative and vicegerent. Madame Olenska's pale and serious face appealed to his fancy, as suited to the occasion and to her unhappy situation. But the way her dress, which had no tucker, sloped away from her thin shoulders shocked and troubled him. He hated to think of May Wellens being exposed to the influence of a young woman so careless of the dictates of taste. After all, he heard one of the younger men begin behind him. Everybody talked through the Mesistopheles and Martha scenes. After all, just what happened? Well, she left him. Nobody attempts to deny that. He's an awful brute, isn't he? Continued the young inquirer, a candid Thorley, who was evidently preparing to enter the lists of the ladies' champion. The very worst. I saw him at Nice, said Lawrence Lefferts with authority. A half-paralyzed, snaring fellow. Rather handsome head, but eyes with a lot of lashes. Well, I'll tell you the sort. When he wasn't with women, he was collecting china. Paying any price for both, I understand. There was a general laugh, and the young champion said, Well then? Well then, she bolted with his secretary. 
Oh, I see. The champion's face fell. It didn't last long, though. I heard of her a few months later living alone in Venice. I believe Lovell Mingott went out to get her. He said she was desperately unhappy. That's all right. But this parading her at the opera's another thing. Perhaps, young Thorley hazarded, she's too unhappy to be left at home. This was greeted with an irreverent laugh, and the youth blushed deeply and tried to look as if he had meant to insinuate what knowing people called a double entendre. Well, it's strange to have brought Miss Welland anyhow, someone said in a low tone, with a side glance at Archer. Oh, that's part of the campaign. Granny's orders, no doubt, Lefferts laughed. When the old lady does a thing, she does it thoroughly. The act was ending, and there was a general stir in the box. Suddenly, Newland Archer felt himself impelled to decisive action. The desire to be the first man to enter Mrs. Mingott's box, to proclaim to the waiting world his engagement to May Welland, and to see her through whatever difficulties her cousin's anomalous situation might involve her in, this impulse had abruptly overruled all scruples and hesitations and sent him hurrying through the red corridors to the further side of the house. As he entered the box, his eyes met Miss Wellens, and he saw that she had instantly understood his motive, though the family dignity, which both considered so high a virtue, would not permit her to tell him so. The persons of their world lived in an atmosphere of faint implications and pale delicacies, and the fact that he and she understood each other without a word seemed to the young man to bring them nearer than any explanation would have done. Her eyes said, You see why Mama brought me, and his answered, I would not for the world have had you stay away. You know my niece, Countess Olenska, Mrs. Welland inquired, as she shook hands with her future son-in-law. Archer bowed without extending his hand, as was the custom on being introduced to a lady, and Ellen Olenska bent her head slightly, keeping her own pale gloved hands clasped on her huge fan of ego feathers. Having greeted Mrs. Lovell Mingott, a large blonde lady in creaking satin, he sat down beside his betrothed and said in a low tone, I hope you've told Madame Olenska that we're engaged. I want everybody to know. I want you to let me announce it this evening at the ball. Miss Wellen's face grew rosy as the dawn, as she looked at him with radiant eyes. If you can persuade Mama, she said. But why should we change what is already settled? He made no answer, but that which his eyes returned, and she added, still more confidently smiling, Tell my cousin yourself, I give you leave. She says she used to play with you when you were children. She made way for him by pushing back her chair, and promptly, and a little ostentatiously, with the desire that the whole house should see what he was doing. Archer seated himself at the Countess Olenska's side. We did used to play together, didn't we? she asked, turning her grave eyes to his. You were a horrid boy, and kissed me once behind a door. But it was your cousin, Vandy Newland, who never looked at me, that I was in love with. Her glance swept the horseshoe curve of the boxes. Oh, how this brings it all back to me. I see everybody here in knickerbockers and pantalettes, she said with her trailing, slightly foreign accent, her eyes returning to his face. Agreeable as their expression was, the young man was shocked that they should reflect so unseemly a picture of the august tribunal before which 
at that very moment her case was being tried. Nothing could be worse taste than misplaced flippancy, and he answered somewhat stiffly, Yes, you have been away a very long time. Oh, centuries and centuries so long, she said, that I'm sure I'm dead and buried, and this dear old place is heaven, which for reasons he could not define, struck Newland Archer as an even more disrespectful way of describing New York society. Chapter 3 It invariably happened in the same way. Mrs. Julius Beaufort, on the night of her annual ball, never failed to appear at the opera. Indeed, she always gave her ball on an opera night in order to emphasise her complete superiority to household cares and her possession of a staff of servants competent to organise every detail of the entertainment in her absence. The Beauforts' house was one of the few in New York that possessed a ballroom. It antedated even Mrs. Manson Mingotts and the Headley Cheverses, and at a time when it was beginning to be thought provincial to put a crash over the drawing room floor and move the furniture upstairs, the possession of a ballroom that was used for no other purpose and left for 364 days of the year to shuttered darkness, with its gilt chairs stacked in a corner and its chandelier in a bag, this undoubted superiority was felt to compensate for whatever was regrettable in the Beaufort past. Mrs. Archer, who was fond of coining her social philosophy into axioms, had once said, We all have our pet common people. And though the phrase was a daring one, its truth was secretly admitted in many an exclusive bosom. But the Beauforts were not exactly common. Some people said they were even worse. Mrs. Beaufort belonged indeed to one of America's most honoured families. She had been the lovely Regina Dallas of the South Carolina branch, a penniless beauty introduced to New York society by her cousin, the imprudent Medora Manson, who was always doing the wrong thing from the right motive. When one was related to the Mansons and the Rushworths, one had a droit de cité, as Mr. Sillerton Jackson who had frequented the Tuileries, called it, in New York society. But did one not forfeit it in marrying Julius Beaufort? The question was, who was Beaufort? He passed for an Englishman, was agreeable, handsome, ill-tempered, hospitable and witty. He had come to America with letters of recommendation from old Mrs. Manson Mingott's English son-in-law, the banker, and had speedily made himself an important position in the world of affairs. But his habits were dissipated, his tongue was bitter, his antecedents were mysterious. And when Medora Manson announced her cousin's engagement to him, it was felt to be one more act of folly in poor Medora's long record of imprudences. But folly is as often justified of her children as wisdom. And two years after young Mrs. Beaufort's marriage, it was admitted that she had the most distinguished house in New York. No one knew exactly how the miracle was accomplished. She was indolent, passive, the Kozik even called her dull, but dressed like an idol, hung with pearls, growing younger and blonder and more beautiful each year. She throned in Mr. Beaufort's heavy brownstone palace and drew all the world there without lifting her jeweled little finger. The knowing people said it was Beaufort himself who trained the servants, taught the chef new dishes, 
told the gardeners what hothouse flowers to grow for the dinner table and the drawing rooms, selected the guests, brewed the after-dinner punch, and dictated the little notes his wife wrote to her friends. If he did, these domestic activities were privately performed, and he presented to the world the appearance of a careless and hospitable millionaire strolling into his own drawing room with the detachment of an invited guest, and saying, My wife's gluxinias are a marvel, aren't they? I believe she gets them out of cue. Mr. Beaufort's secret, people were agreed, was the way he carried things off. It was all very well to whisper that he had been helped to leave England by the international banking house in which he had been employed. He carried off that rumour as easily as the rest, though New York's business conscience was no less sensitive than its moral standard. He carried everything before him, and all New York into his drawing rooms, and for over twenty years now people had said they were going to the Beauforts with the same tone of security as if they had said they were going to Mrs. Manson Mingott's and with the added satisfaction of knowing they would get hot canvas-backed ducks and vintage wines instead of tepid Veuve Clicquot without a year and warmed-up croquets from Philadelphia. Mrs. Beaufort then had, as usual, appeared in her box just before the jewel song, and when, again as usual, she rose at the end of the third act, drew her opera cloak about her lovely shoulders and disappeared, New York knew that meant that half an hour later, the ball would begin. The Beaufort House was one that New Yorkers were proud to show to foreigners, especially on the night of the annual ball. The Beauforts had been among the first people in New York to own their own red velvet carpet and have it rolled down the steps by their own footmen under their own awning instead of hiring it with the supper and the ballroom chairs. They had also inaugurated the custom of letting the ladies take their cloaks off in the hall instead of shuffling up to the hostess's bedroom and recurling their hair with the aid of the gas burner. Beaufort was understood to have said that he supposed all his wife's friends had maids who saw to it that they were properly coiffés when they left home. Then the house had been boldly planned with a ballroom so that, instead of squeezing through a narrow passage to get to it, as at the Chiverses, one marched solemnly down a vista of enfiladed drawing rooms, the sea green, the crimson, and the bouton d'or, seeing from afar the many candle lustres reflected in the polished parquetry, and beyond the depths of a conservatory where camellias and tree ferns arched their costly foliage over seats of black and gold bamboo. Neil and Archer, as became a man of his position, strolled in somewhat late. He had left his overcoat with a silk stockinged footman. The stockings were one of Beaufort's few fatuities, had dawdled a while in the library, hung with Spanish leather and furnished with boule and malachite, where a few men were chatting and putting on their dancing gloves, and had finally joined the line of guests whom Mrs. Beaufort was receiving on the threshold of the crimson drawing room. Archer was distinctly nervous. He had not gone back to his club after the opera, as the young bloods usually did. But the night being fine, he had walked for some distance up Fifth Avenue before turning back in the direction of the Beauforts' house. He was definitely afraid that the Mingotts might be going too far, that in fact they might have Granny Mingotts' orders to bring the Countess Olenska to the ball. From the tone of the club box he had perceived how grave a mistake that would be, and though he was more than ever determined to see the thing through, 
he felt less chivalrously eager to champion his betrothed's cousin than before their brief talk at the opera. Wandering on to the Bouton d'Or drawing room, where Beaufort had had the audacity to hang Love Victorious, Archer found Mrs. Welland and her daughter standing near the ballroom door. Couples were already gliding over the floor beyond. The light of the wax candles fell on revolving tulle skirts and girlish heads wreathed with modest blossoms. On the dashing aigrettes and ornaments of the young married women's coiffures, and on the glitter of highly glazed shirt fronts and fresh glazed gloves. Miss Welland, evidently about to join the dancers, hung on the threshold, her lilies of the valley in her hand. She carried no other bouquet, her face a little pale, her eyes burning with a candid excitement. A group of young men and girls were gathered about her, and there was much hand-clasping, laughing and pleasantry, on which Mrs. Welland, standing slightly apart, shed the beam of a qualified approval. It was evident that Miss Welland was in the act of announcing her engagement, while her mother affected the air of parental reluctance considered suitable to the occasion. Archer paused a moment. It was at his express wish that the announcement had been made, and yet it was not thus that he would have wished to have his happiness known. To proclaim it in the heat and noise of a crowded ballroom was to rob it of the fine bloom of privacy, which should belong to things nearest the heart. His joy was so deep that this blurring of the surface left its essence untouched, but he would have liked to keep the surface pure too. It was something of a satisfaction to find that May Wellen shared his feeling. Her eyes fled to his beseechingly, and their look said, Remember, we're doing this because it's right. No appeal could have found a more immediate response in Archer's breast, but he wished that the necessity of their action had been represented by some ideal reason, and not simply by poor Ellen Malenska. The group about Miss Welland made way for him with significant smiles, and after taking his share of the felicitations, he drew his betrothed into the middle of the ballroom floor and put his arm about her waist. Now we shan't have to talk, he said, smiling into her candid eyes as they floated away on the soft waves of the blue Danube. She made no answer. Her lips trembled into a smile, but the eyes remained distant and serious, as if bent on some ineffable vision. Dare, Archer whispered, pressing her to him. It was borne in on him that the first hours of being engaged, even if it spent in a ballroom, had in them something grave and sacramental. What a new life it was going to be, with this whiteness, radiance, goodness at one side. The dance over, the two wandered into the conservatory, and sitting behind a tall screen of tree ferns and camellias, Newland pressed her gloved hands to his lips. You see, I did as you asked me to, she said. Yes, I couldn't wait, he answered, smiling. After a moment, he added, Only I wish it hadn't had to be at a ball. Yes, I know. She met his glance comprehendingly. But after all, even here we're alone together, aren't we? Oh, dearest always, Archer cried. Evidently, she was always going to understand. She was always going to say the right thing. The discovery made the cup of his bliss overflow, and he went on gaily. The worst of it is that I want to kiss you and I can't. As he spoke, he took a swift glance about the conservatory assured himself of their momentary privacy, and catching her to him laid a 
fugitive pressure on her lips. To counteract the audacity of this proceeding, he led her to a bamboo sofa in a less secluded part of the conservatory, and sitting down beside her, broke the lily of the valley from her bouquet. She sat silent, and the world lay like a sunlit valley at their feet. Did you tell my cousin Ellen? She asked presently, as if she spoke through a dream. He roused himself and remembered that he had not done so. Some invincible repugnance to speak of such things to the strange foreign woman had checked the words on his lips. No, I hadn't the chance after all, he said, fibbing hastily. Ah, she looked disappointed, but gently resolved on gaining her point. You must, then, for I didn't either. And I shouldn't like her to think. Of course not. But aren't you, after all, the person to do it? She pondered on this. If I'd done it at the right time, yes. But now that there's been a delay, I think you must explain that I'd ask you to tell her the opera before our speaking about it to everybody here. Otherwise, she might think I had forgotten her. You see, she's one of the family and she's been away so long that she's rather sensitive. Arthur looked at her glowingly. Dear and great angel, of course I'll tell her. He glanced a trifle apprehensively toward the crowded ballroom. But I haven't seen her yet, has she come? No, at the last minute she decided not to. At the last minute, he echoed, betraying his surprise that she should ever have considered the alternative possible. Yes, she's awfully fond of dancing, the young girl answered simply. But suddenly she made up her mind that her dress wasn't smart enough for a ball, though we thought it was so lovely, and so my aunt had to take her home. Oh well, said Archer, with happy indifference. Nothing about his betrothed pleased him more than her resolute determination to carry to its utmost limit that ritual of ignoring the unpleasant in which they had both been brought up. She knows as well as I do, he reflected, the real reason of her cousin staying away. But I shall never let her see, by the least sign, that I am conscious of there being a shadow of a shade on poor Ellen Olenska's reputation. Good night.